Today's reading is going to be taken from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, which is on 977 in your pew Bible. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humil humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. I, I wish you all had my vantage point of the worship service, because uh, I know what's going to be preached, and it just comes alive in these songs. And sometimes I'd, I'd ask you to just... After you've heard the sermon, think your way back through the worship service as it was put together, and I think it, it comes all the more alive. So I appreciate uh, Drew and the praise team and, uh, for their work. Last June, I was asked to preach at a church that is, was in transition uh, between pastors, and so I preached a sermon on the church, the Trinitarian church. And I thought this would be a good sermon for Westgate, and uh, so I planned to preach it the last Sunday of December, so we would begin the new year with God's vision for what the church is to be. Well, our schedule changed, so then I thought this would be a good sermon to preach right after Brandon leaves, get us all on the same page as to what the church is to be, and then... Travis came up with a better idea. Let's preach four sermons from 1 Samuel about the transition there. And so the sermon got put back in the file. Uh, until last week, we had a, a difficult day and sometimes disappointing, perhaps disappointment with me and with the elders. And I thought, maybe this is the time why, why God set it up for this sermon today. And so we're going to get back to 1 Peter next week, but we want to see what God would show us as bringing us together for his glory. Uh, Ephesians 3, 20, 21 reads this. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, and I've often turned to this verse and said, wow. I mean, this is not simply saying God answers prayer, but he answers prayer that we haven't even thought of praying. In fact, he, asks, he answers it more abundantly than we ever thought. In fact, it says he exceedingly far more abundantly. And so I've always found this verse is such an encouragement to my prayer life and just to life in general, because God's thinking about things I don't think about. But it's only this week that I tied it to the next verse. What I just said, I, I think it's true, because God is that big. 
But that isn't the point God is trying to make when he talks about his investment in us and what he has to offer us. He then says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And all of a sudden I saw that verse with, a, with whole new eyes. God's power, what Paul's saying here is God's power, the abundance of his power is available for the church to be the church that Jesus Christ wants it to be. I don't know what your dreams of a church have ever been, but they're too small according to this verse. And so I want us to, to capture what is that vision that God has for the church and how he might lead us to fulfill that vision. We notice in <clears throat> chapter 4 that was just read, he, he says, I therefore... So Paul is connecting what he's about to say to what he just said. Not just in that passage, but also in the passage that was read by our praise team about Paul wanting us to have the fullness of God by capturing the vastness of God's love for us in Christ. Going back earlier in the chapter. But that therefore, he's saying, I want glory in the church. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He then lays out in chapter 4 two aspects of his calling. One is unity. The second is taking, bringing each one of us together in such a way that our gifts work together to mature us into the very image of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're only going to deal with the first one, unity. And so I'm asking us at Westgate to, to open our hearts to what God might be saying to each of us and to us as a congregation in his call to unity. And if, if, you're, if you're new here or you're, you're not yet a Christian, it's possible you've seen very little of unity in what God has called the church to be. I've often heard the church is full of hypocrites. And that's often because of the way we've talked about each other and, and all churches. And so I just ask this morning for you that you hear not where we have failed, but what God calls the church to be and what Christians we're going to strive to be. Our Father, your spirit needs to speak to us today. We thank you for your word, which is so timely always, written 2,000 years ago, as though you were sitting in our pews this morning. And so, work it, Lord, into the fabric of my life. Work this into the fabric of our elders, our leaders, every one of us, God because we see this morning the beauty of what we can be and how you can be glorified. Lord, teach us your word. Amen. The passage tells us to walk worthy of his calling and then it 
points out, points to unity, to know our calling. Central to that calling is unity. So what is Christ calling to the church? What is he wanting us to be? And I think that word unity drives us back to the very essence of God himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we understand who God is, especially in that interpersonal relationship that he has among himself, we will have the answers to every major question of life. When we understand this, we will understand who we are, what our purpose is, how we are to interact with each other, uh, why the Bible was given to us, what prayer is all about, how to live out the Christian life, how to be one in marriage. His call to marriage and his call to the church. Many members, but one body, the body of Jesus Christ, a unity. Uh, theologian Colin Gunten said this, the manifest inadequacy of the theology of the church drives from the fact that it has never seriously and consistently been rooted in the conception of the being of God as triune. What's he said? He said, we don't understand what the church is. We are not living out what the church is because we haven't started with the triune God because we as a church are to be a re reflection of the relationship of Father and Son. Jesus said it in John 17 as he prays this prayer. And the prayer is all about, I'm leaving. This is what has to happen for the disciples and all who follow him. And Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's the church and posterity. What's he praying? That we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they may be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see that? His prayer is that we as believers, not just in Westgate Church, but in our relationship with other churches, the church of Jesus Christ, would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. And so how are they one? What's he talking about? And we spoke to this two weeks ago, that when we look at John 17, we see two eternal qualities in their relationship. One is their mutual love, to always love each other, sacrificially willing to love each other. But they also glorify each other. They also treasure each other and are for each other. Bruce Ware writes this as he expands this picture of, of the Trinity. In this tripersonal relationship, the three persons love one another, support one another, assist one another, team with one another, honor one another, communicate with one another, and in everything respect and enjoy one another. 
They're in need of nothing but each other throughout eternity, yet they still created us. Such is the richness and fullness and the completion of the social relationship that exists in the Trinity. So this is what's going on in the Trinity. This is what should be going on in the church. So read it from those eyes. God's call, his vision for the church, that we would love one another, support one another, assist one another, team with one another, honor one another, communicate with one another, and in every respect, enjoy one another. What if there was a church like this? What a testimony they, or could it be we, could be to the world. And if you read the scriptures, you will read 23 one another statements, all of which, almost all of which reflect the father-son relationship, except forgiving one another, bearing with one another. Uh, they didn't need to do that. We do. So, how can we become this kind of church? Back to Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you as a walk worthy in the manner of your calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice this. We can only be that kind of church if we are eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit, only if we have peace with one another. Notice, he doesn't say produce unity. He says maintain it. Why? Because when we come to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity. And if the Holy Spirit's in me and the Holy Spirit's in you, we would naturally have unity. And so we don't need to create unity. It's already there in the Holy Spirit. We can only destroy unity. And so it is showing us that when we are disunited and not seeking unity, then we cannot be walking in the Holy Spirit. We are not following God. So if we come and we personally walk with the Holy Spirit, and each of us does, we're going to come together as one. Notice also, it doesn't say be reluctant to maintain the unity. It doesn't say be eager to make sure my personal preferences are acknowledged. It says be eager to maintain the unity. Peace. That has to be at the very core of who a church is. But that is not necessarily easy. Because we don't always walk with the Holy Spirit. We don't always put him first. I am selfish. I am sinful. If you're not, you have to, to some extent, live with me in peace. And part of that, as he says here, is we do this 
by bearing with one another in love. Another way of saying that is we need to put up with one another because we are sinners. We're going to step on one another's toes. We're going to be overlooked. We may feel forgotten. We may feel unvalued. We may be offended. We have to bear with one another as sinners. I have regularly not done that. And I can go back to my days in Dallas, Texas. And, you know, that Dallas is filled with incredible churches. And I was at one of them. And in a service, the pastor inadvertently embarrassed me. So you know what my response was? I never went back to that church again. Great. I did not try to understand the mistake the pastor made. I did not go to him and say, you know, I really felt hurt. I didn't allow him the chance to apologize or to confess. Oh, I just, in my self-righteousness, in my personal offense, in my rights, he hurt me, so I am walking. And I hope that hurts him, and I'm sure it did not, because I don't think he knew me from anyone. <laughs> uh, don't do that. Don't be like me. Sometimes forbearance takes forgiveness. Colossians teaches we can give that forgiveness. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. If you're having trouble forgiving, just go to understand how much Christ has forgiven us. And then I think anything we need to forgive pales in comparison and our hearts are warmed up to forgive. Sometimes it means just overlook it. Don't make a big deal out of it. So how do we know the difference between those two? And I'll just share the way I personally approach things. If somebody has hurt me or offended me, I ask the question, is this in the person's character or is it an anomaly? Is it an outlier? And if it's an outlier, and it often is, I just let it roll off my back and say, that's not who the person is. They just had a bad moment. If it is a part of a person's character, then for that person's sake, for the sake of the church and the sake of God, I need to speak to that person. If I don't know, I wait and I look and I see if that behavior or attitude shows up again. And if it does, then it probably means it's part of the character. And so I, I need to talk to them. And usually if I have that kind of conversation, I first give them room for self-examination. Give them a day or two. Let them have the opportunity to see it for themselves. And then they may come to me and say, oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to come in as though I'm over them judging them. And then if they don't, I'll often sit down with them and then say, give them the opportunity for self-judgment. Uh, I had this experience where there was a couple in the church, new Christians who were living together. 
And my first response was, I'm the pastor here. I need to bring the hammer of God down on them because God does not like this. I'm going to make sure they understand that and I'm going to give them an ultimatum. And then, uh, fortunately, the Spirit of God got into me that day and said, uh, they don't even know you care or love them. And so I said, you're right. You usually are, God. <laughs> and so I went to dinner with them. We spent three, four hours together. We had a blast. We laughed. We just connected. The next day, I asked them to come into my office. I sat down. I just opened the scriptures to 1 Thessalonians 4, which talks about sanctification and immorality being wrong. And I said, I closed the Bible, and I said, I understand you're living together. And the man said, I didn't know that. I'm moving out this afternoon. We need to give people opportunity to, to, to see for themselves instead of us coming down on them. And then, if they don't, then we, we see, show them what they, they weren't seeing. But again, we don't need to confront everything. There's some things we just let roll off our back. There will not be unity if we don't understand we're each sinners and put up with one another. So how do we get this Ability to put up with one another. Paul gives us three character qualities. He said, with all humility, with all gentleness, and with all patience. You see, we need humility. See, when we, uh, when we have bloated opinions of ourselves... We are going to look down on others. We will be judgmental. We won't if we're humble. If we have a bloated opinion of ourselves or we essentially are coming to the church looking first to what we want and our needs, we will be very critical of the way things are done in a church that don't match our personal desires. And that will break through unity. And if I have a high opinion of myself and somebody comes to me and points out something wrong in me, I'm going to be self-defensive. And instead of accepting their words, I'm going to feel it's an attack on me. And unity is broken. But if we have humility... We don't need to be defensive. We open ourselves to, I'm not, I'm not all I should be. Share with me what I need to hear to become more like Christ. I will not say everything has to be about me. In fact, second, uh, Philippians 2 says, don't merely look out for your self-interests. Consider one another more important than yourself. And then he gives the example of Jesus Christ who humbled himself. Though he was God, he took on human flesh, incomprehensible. But beyond that, he took rejection, humiliation, physical brutality, and ultimately the cross. Why? Because he considered us more important than himself. 
that's humility. And when we have that attitude, we can put up with those who disagree or things aren't going the way we want them to go. Second quality says gentleness. This is the same word in the uh, Sermon on the Mount that says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not a quality that is highly valued today. When we hear that word meekness, we think of a milquetoast person who has such little personal regard, is so weak, they let everybody run all over them. That's not what meekness is. Meekness is a strength that you are so strong that you can give up your rights. You can let people treat you unfairly because you are so strong. This, picture, this is pictured in the movie 24, which is about Jackie Robinson breaking the, the color barrier in baseball. Branch Rickey chose him at the age of 27, and he comes in in the scene into Branch Rickey, the owner of the Dodgers. And Branch Rickey starts to throw every racial slur and epithet, swearing at him based on his color. And of course, the anger begins to rise up in Jackie Robinson. And then Branch Rickey steps back and says, I'm doing this to test you because this is what you're going to get from stadium after stadium beginning with the Dodgers. I want you to be able to stand down. And Jackie Robinson says to him, says to him so you want a man who doesn't have the guts to fight back? And Branch Rickey says, no, no, no. I want a man who has the guts to not fight back. That's meekness. And because Jackie Robinson was able to be meek, the color barrier was busted. Why was he able to be meek? Because he looked at something greater than himself. This wasn't about him being on a baseball team. It was about being the gateway to African-American after African-American to enter into Major League Baseball. Our salvation, our being the church, our relationship with God is only there because of the meekness of Jesus Christ. He took rejection. He took the blows. He took the humiliation. He could have called myriads of angels to his defense. He could have spoken one word and knocked them all over. But he didn't because of a meekness that was so strong. A meekness that was there because we and God were more important than himself. He seeking a greater good than his own personal interests. Meekness will allow us to have unity. Meekness, because we are willing to overlook our personal rights because there is something greater, the glory of God in the church of Jesus Christ. The third quality is patience. This is the word patience with people. I don't know if you recall, like I do, that uh, 
a few centuries back or so, some Christians would wear a button or a t-shirt that said, be patient with me, God isn't finished with me. Isn't that what we all want, right? Oh gosh, we, we should all walk around with that, right? Saying, please be patient with me, God's not finished. But how about the reverse? I'll be patient with you because I know you're a work in progress. We all want that. We need to give it to each other. It's not easy necessarily. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul prays for the Colossians. He says, I want you to be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God. Not to do fantastic miracles, to live perfect holy lives, to evangelize the world. He says, I want you to be strengthened with all power and glorious might so you can be patient. Patient with circumstances and patient with people because patience is a supernatural quality. It along with meekness, is a fruit of the Spirit of God. So it is not easy, but it's what God has called us to. So these three character qualities we need. How do we get them? By digging deeply into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Already alluded to it, we forgive. Why? Because in the gospel, we are so forgiven. It's why Paul prays, oh, I want you to know the heights and depths and widths and breadth of God's, God's love that's found in Christ Jesus, that's found in the gospel. Because that prepares you to be the church that glorifies God. That's what prepares you to have these character qualities. The therefore runs all the way back to the very beginning of Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, and 3. Uh, imagine this picture. I'm invited to God's house. So I come into God's house and I, I go in sheepishly because I know I've sinned against God, I've offended him, I've been so selfish, uh, I've been such a horrible testimony for him. Um, I've I've committed adultery by going after other lovers than, than him. I've committed idolatry because I've made things in my life as though they were God, more than God himself. I, I sought them to fulfill me rather than God to fulfill me. I, I was rebellious. I stuck my hand in God's face many times. I wanted my way. I, I was dishonest with myself so I could justify my sin. And, and I go in sheepishly, and there's the devil pointing out all those things to God. What in the world is Bruce doing in your household? And Jesus Christ steps forward and says, I died for all of those sins. They are wiped clean. And the Father rushes to me, and he gives me that giant bear hug that the Father gave his prodigal son, which said, I love you. Welcome into all my treasures are your treasures. Come, sit with me at this feast. And so I praise God and I sit down 
and I see other invitations on the table, and all of a sudden walks in this fellow, very unkempt, kind of smelly. I react a little bit, and next person comes in, boisterous, and then the arrogant come in, and, you know, I'm shying back and saying, gee, I really wanted this to be about me and God, but, and then this whole troop of people who've offended me and never, never confessed to me, and, and they're there, and then my biggest enemies walk in, and Satan's saying to me, look, look at those people. You can't associate with them. But each one that comes in, Jesus Christ says, all their sins I've died for. And he reach, walks over to each one of them and gives them that big father of the prodigal son hug and welcomes them to the table. What do I do then? Hopefully, my heart has melted and I praise God he brought me in, and he brought them in too. That's what the gospel does. Specifically, the gospel should make us humble. Ephesians 2 brings it out. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. There's no hope for you in a relationship with God. But God in his mercy reached out to you. And by his grace you are saved not of yourselves, not of any works. There's no way you can boast because he saved you by his grace. If we get that, we'll be humble. The gospel gives us meekness. See, to be strong, you have to know your identity and be strong in your identity. When you're strong in your identity and you know who you are, it doesn't matter what other people say about you. You really can't get embarrassed because you know who you are. The gospel tells you who you are, not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. It says he treasures you so much that he died for you. He paid not gold or silver or precious stones. He paid the ultimate price, his life. And so he's welcomed you in as children. Ephesians 1 says, in love he predestined you. That's who you are, the beloved by God through all eternity. When you know who you are, you'll be meek. The gospel tells you who you are. And patience, you know, we're often impatient because people are keeping us from getting what we want. Well, the gospel says you got everything you need for life and godliness. You have every spiritual treasure and riches in the heavenlies. Ephesians. If we have all we need in God. And we can trust the God who died on the cross for us. And if he did that, we can trust him with everything in our lives, providing whatever we need. We don't need anything from each other. And so nobody can keep anything we need from us. Nobody can take it away. So we will be patient with them because of the gospel. 
Jesus said in John 17, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. May the glory be in the church, right? The glory you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know, Father, that you sent me. The ultimate apologetic, the ultimate display of the power of God is the oneness of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ has not done a good job. Thankfully, God is so forgiving, so gracious. We have a chance to move in that direction. And you know what? The difficulties are the stage in which we can show the world. We're not one because we're all the best friends. We're not one because we see everything the same way. We're not one because we have perfectly treated each other the way we want to be treated. We are one because of what Jesus Christ has done in the gospel. Tim Chester wrote this. The Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. See, there's a lot of people out there who say, I don't see the power of the, of the gospel. I don't see the power of your faith. I mean, the church looks like every other organization. Chester, the Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. We are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful word that takes men and women's who are lovers of themselves and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into people who love God and love one another. We are the living proof that the death of Christ was not just a vain expression of God's love, but an effective death that achieved the salvation of a people who now love one another sincerely from the heart. It's in our hands. 